Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 368. Parents, please make sure a professional teaches your children how to drive on the road. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. 2015 marks Covercraft's 50th anniversary. They've manufactured premium quality exterior and interior covers here in the United States with a reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit with over 80,000 patterns and growing. You can choose from dozens of fabric options and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicle. Made in the USA, Covercraft is the right choice. I've protected my special rides with their covers for over 40 years, and you should too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited and so revved up to introduce a very special guest, Ari Leyendijk. Ari, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm always buckled up and I'm always ready for a fun ride. Thank you. Awesome. Ari Leyendijk is known as the Flying Dutchman. He started racing in the early 70s, winning the Super V Championship in both Europe and the United States. He won endurance races at the 24 Hours of Daytona, the 12 Hours of Sebring, and he's driven in the International Race of Champions. With 17 starts, he's a two-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, taking the checkered flag in 1990 and 1997, where his average speed of over 185 miles an hour set a new record that stood for 23 years. In 2014, Ari was inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame. Ari, I've told our listeners just a little tiny bit about you. Could you just take a moment and share a little bit more about your history and your racing career before we get into some of the questions I have for you? Well, my racing career started in the Netherlands. That's where my dad was quite a popular driver in the Formula V 1300 class. They had big starting fields, 25, 30 cars, and it was quite a popular series. And my dad was then known as the father of the Formula V uh, since he also had a workshop where he worked on cars that belonged to other drivers, and then, of course, on his car. And when I started racing, it was an obvious choice to start in Formula V 1300. Sure. And that was, that was 1972, so I, I raced alongside my dad in my first year of racing, and in the beginning, I uh, wasn't really able to keep up with him, but I was, I was getting closer as the year uh, went by, and by the end of the year, I was able to... Uh, uh, I'll qualify uh, all the top guys and my dad and uh, actually led that race for most of the time until I got a flat tire. But anyway, <laughs> it was pretty cool to start on the front row of one of these races next to my dad. And, uh, oh, man. You know, we, we, we would outbreak each other and, uh, you know, we weren't just following each other around. So that was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. And he was known as the grandfather of Formula V because he was already in his 50s. So that's how I got started, and uh, not long after that, I uh, pretty much decided to become professional. 
And so I was uh, a professional race car driver for 10 years without making a dime. Oh. And that's how that that's how that kind of goes until I uh, ventured off to the United States Yeah, in uh, 19, 1981. Well, when you got to the United States, tell us and our listeners a little bit about what transpired then. Well, I was invited to do a race at the end of 1980. Um, at the time, I was driving in the Formula Super V class. And the Super V class was quite popular in the States. It was also known as the Mini Indy series. And it's comparable to like Indy Lights at the moment. And I finished second in the European Championship. And they invited the first, the top five, to do a, a race in Phoenix at the end of 1980. And I was the only one who accepted the invitation because the only thing that they paid for was to ship the car over, but the driver pretty much had to take care of his own flight and his own hotel and all that stuff. So I had a sponsor who uh, sponsored me uh, for that, and I came over here. And it was pretty cool because I I ended up sixth place in my first oval race, and I was quite uh, shocked uh, to experience what an oval was all about because obviously I had never seen one before. Mm -hmm. But I did reasonably well. I finished sixth, and after that race... uh, one of the Super V team owners asked me if I wanted to drive for him the following year. And I was quite shocked uh, that somebody would come up and, you know, after seeing me race uh, one time and thought I did a good job, would, would offer me a ride. So that's how that came about. And that's how I started my first year in the United States in 1981. Very cool. Well, I love this story and the fact that you raced with your dad and now your son, who's going to be a future guest here on Cars Yeah with me in, in just about a week is racing as well. So there's a family lineage here that's happening in the Lion Dyke family. You guys like to be out on the track driving cars fast. I love this. And we're going to learn more about some of the different adventures and races and things you've done along the way. But first, I always like to start by asking my guests for some kind of success quote or a mantra, something that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success as a race car driver. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Ari, take the wheel. Well, I think that one of my biggest help was that I was pretty good at Mm -hmm. self-coaching. A lot of drivers always need people around them and to guide them into a certain direction. And I've certainly had my fair share of people guiding me. And first that comes to mind uh, would be my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something... If you love what you do and you have the passion to do it, you just need to keep on going until the pieces fall into place. And it could take a couple of years, but it could take like 10 years. Yes. <laughs> and um, my son is actually quite a good example of that because he just keeps on going. He doesn't want to give up. Um, and now he has his own team in off-road racing, although his, his heart is with open wheel but he's still doing something that he really likes and he's still trying to make a living at it, uh, owning his own team. Sure. You know, it sounds easy to say never give up, but you should never give up if you want to pursue your dreams. Uh, It's a great mantra, a great idea, concept to have, and especially in racing, as you know, it could come down to that very last lap and all of a sudden everything in front of you changes and you end up in the lead. We've seen that happen how many times at the Indy 500? Would you share a story with me that instigated your passion for racing? You talked about growing up in a family with a dad who's the grandfather of Super V. Is there a pivotal moment you remember back in your childhood when you realized, you know what, I want to race cars? Well, that moment, uh, I always was, uh, 
I went to the races with my dad, and I was really a big fan of what he did. But it never really, I was not one of those kids that just couldn't wait to get into a go-kart or to get into a car. I was pretty mellow in that uh, regards. But racing was always the subject of, you know, around the dinner table. And uh, my dad used to repair and maintain all these cars for the uh, Dutch uh, race car driving school. Mm-hmm. And I would help him in the winter months to get these cars ready. So we would be at the racetrack at seven in the morning and fuel up all the cars, get the tire brush ready. And so basically I worked with him doing that. And they thought it was cool that I helped him. And the owners of the school said, well, we'll give you a school. You can do the school. It won't cost you anything. We'll just give it to you for free because you work here all the time. So my dad said, well, we'll use this, uh, this old Formula V that we have. And, uh, my brother-in-law was also mixed in the conversation and he had just bought a car, a Formula V. And then he said to my dad, well, we could share my car and then we, uh, we'll, you know, we'll do the school that way. Mm-hmm. So I kind of rolled into it that way just through discussion. And, uh, I had this, I, I had this thinking of, well, if I, if I like it, if I do any good, I, you know, I could always go race. But if I don't, then that's it. So I was pretty excited about the fact that either way it would go because I didn't really know what to expect. Sure. But once I got in the car, that's when basically it hit me and I really enjoyed the driving and I enjoyed the the sliding around and catching the car in the drift and I really loved it. And then that's that's really the moment that I decided that yes, this is what I want to do. So it wasn't something I was dreaming of as a kid. It yeah. was really after having you know, done a few laps on the track and actually doing it. Sure. I loved your comment. I rolled into my career in racing. That's very cool. You picked a profession that was uh, fraught with ups and downs and challenges and failures. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners a moment in your career, perhaps, if it happened, that you were about ready to just hang up the towel and say, you know what, this is, is not for me. Or Maybe a huge challenge or a big failure that you faced. It was a huge letdown. But the most important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that time in life, that challenge, that failure, and were you able to move forward from it? Well, I think that a lot of drivers, there's a lot more really good drivers that have retired, I think, than really bad ones. Mm. Because the bad ones never became a race car driver to begin with. And um, a lot of drivers just face the challenges of finding sponsorship to continue or finding sponsorship to go to the next level. And then some of these drivers that are just so good, they win everything they get in and they get there eventually. And even some of those don't get there eventually. I had already begun to put together a racing team where I would be the team owner and I would start running really young kids. That was already something that was in the making, and I was doing that in Europe in 82. Because 82, I did a year of racing with uh, really old equipment, and I was having no success just here and there, uh, you know, a second and a third place. And and really not much was happening, and my career was pretty much going on the downside. And Mm -hmm. so I looked at becoming a team owner and try to find investors to help me put this team together and run uh, kids. So then the, the phone rang and it was uh, the same person from 81 who asked me, do you want to run in the Super V series again in the United States? Uh, we can set up this new team with a new car. 
the car was an Anson, built in England. They were just coming to the United States and trying to obviously promote their brand, sell cars, and, and run a car. So that changed everything because then I said to my wife, I said, well, you know, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to see how that goes. And that's, that's it. If it doesn't work out, then I'm done. And so I started driving again in the United States. And it was a horrible year as far as performance. The car constantly broke down. I think I finished one of the first six races. Oh, wow. And uh, I eventually, I walked away from the team. But I was a guest of the owner of uh, Provimi Veal at the time, the owner of Provimi Veal in Milwaukee. He had his own IndyCar team, and Tony Bettenhausen was the driver, and so was Derek Daly. They also sponsored the Elkhart Lake uh, IndyCar race, the, the Provimi Veal 200, and I was his guest that weekend. Uh, and the, the owner is a Dutchman, mm-hmm. and his brother, they're both of Dutch, but they had become American citizens, and they were here forever. But they, we really got along because we spoke the same language besides English. Mm-hmm. And I never really asked him for any help or sponsorship, or I was just, you know, more of an acquaintance than trying to knock on the door for a ride. But then after that race, when I walked away from the team, he asked me what happened. I said, "Well, I." You know, I'm done with the team because the car broke down again and the relationship with the team is not good. And then he asked me, well, what are you going to do now? I said, well, I'm basically going to quit racing unless you help me. Mm. So it was kind of a plea for help. Yeah. He said, well, yeah, I'll help you. (laughs) And that was it. Oh, my gosh. And literally within two years, I was driving an IndyCar for Provimi Veal. So that was... Wow, the turn of the turn of events and the and the if you want to call it luck or just fate or circumstance, right but, place, right time. Uh, yeah, it worked out really good, and we had an amazing relationship. It was more a father son relationship than that of a team owner and a driver. So it was uh, it was amazing. Wow, wow, very fortuitous, wonderful. The fact that you were there and that happened, but. You know, it came from a relationship that was built a little further back in time, so that had to have something to do with it. Let's shift gears here, Ari, and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love to have you share with our listeners one of those career racing aha moments. I like to say it's a a time when um, something happened that you went, whoa, here's an opportunity, and tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into your success. Well, I think the big uh, aha moment came when I was driving on on the ovals, believe it or not, I was never really comfortable on the oval tracks in the beginning of my IndyCar career. Mm-hmm. My first race that I won in the United States was on an oval at Milwaukee in the Super V. But the step from Super V to IndyCar was pretty big. Oh, yeah. As far as horsepower, speed, and, and you name it. So, And in IndyCar, I had struggled quite a bit in 85 and 86 on the ovals. And um, it wasn't until 1987 when I was driving for Hemlogarn Racing and my crew chief was Larry Curry. And we started testing at Phoenix at BIR and we started getting the car really dialed in. And then once the car was dialed in and it was handling really well, it gave me a lot of confidence. That's when I had that 
aha moment where I would say, I said to myself, yeah, I can do this. And now I know what it takes. And it wasn't a matter of really adjusting my driving style, although that, that had to be done. I, uh, that was the year I started left foot braking, I think. That combined with working with a setup that actually would respond and would give me confidence that where that, that changed anything, everything. Wow. And that really, that, that would lead later to my success at Indy, although at Indianapolis, the first year I raced there, I kind of had the aha moment as well because like three quarters of the race into the race, I really got into a good rhythm and the car was quite good and and I was saying to myself, remember thinking, I really like this. <laughs> and, you know, in order to go fast at Indianapolis, you have to have a good car. Everything has to work well, but you also have to like it. Yes. You also, you also have to enjoy it. Because if you show up there and you just have a, a fear or a hesitation about the place, it's just going to slow you down. And uh, Indianapolis is one of those high-speed tracks, which I really enjoyed, and I had a lot of respect for it. I knew my limits, and I knew the car's limits, and I had this uh, approach to it, which uh, worked obviously really well for me. But like anything else, the car has to be good in order to perform good, but you know, when the car is not handling well at Indy, it's a pretty scary place. Oh, gosh. And uh, Can't imagine. And, and driving around there, knowing that, um, you just have to kind of, you know, bring it uh, home until the next pit stop, and hopefully you can make a good change. But uh, those are the things you have to deal with at Indy. It could be the car would be great one stint, and it could be pretty bad the other stint. Yeah. Ah, incredible. Wonderful story. How about the first really special race car you ever drove? Uh, share with us the first car that you drove that you really went, man, this thing is awesome. I love the way it drives. I feel so confident in us. And maybe tell us a story or a memory you have about that particular race car. I don't know. I don't know really if I think back when I first got into a Formula 3 car. Mm-hmm. And people in the United States can't really relate to Formula 3 because they don't really run them here. But it's comparable again to an Indy Lights. From what I was used to and getting into that, I thought that car was just amazing. The grip the car had, the handling the car had, of course, but everything. But I don't really remember, I mean, I did a lot of races, and there's not a race that stands out that, that I would say, oh boy, this car really reminded me of that race. So, Let's have a little bit of fun here, Ari. What was your most memorable race? You've run so many races. I know this could be difficult, but take us to that adrenaline-pumping experience and share a little bit about what the race was, and maybe a couple moments from that adventure. Well, it has to be it has to be winning uh, the Indy 500 in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just because not because it's the Indy 500, but the way it all kind of came together and how it just worked so well, and it being my first IndyCar win. Period to win the Indy 500 was obviously amazing, um, but the car was just that particular month of May, we uh, we were still able to drive as much as we wanted to, and we could throw tires at the car all day long, and those days were over now, but back then we did a lot of testing. And uh, after having qualified third, uh, which was already, uh, for me, exciting, um, the tests we did with the 
the race set up, everything went so well that I said to myself, boy, if it keeps going this well, I think I could win this race before, before I even, you know, before we started. Mm-hmm. And that's how it unfolded. The car was just, you know, everything was going so well. The car handled really well. And then in the beginning, it didn't handle so well, but we made a little change to the front wing. That's all it needed. And we were able to stay in touch with the leaders the whole time. And, uh, Eventually, we passed, you know, we passed Bobby Rahal for the lead, and it was an awesome pass and well timed. And so that race is really my most memorable race. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> there are there are other races where I I I think back, and some of those races were so cool. But those were in like the lower formula in the Super V class, for instance. Uh, I remember racing at the Nurburgring, which is back then was still the old Nurburgring, and um, it was raining so hard you could hardly see where you were going, but obviously we knew the track pretty well, so we knew where we were going. <laughs> yeah. And to win a race uh, at that track is a very cool period, but to do it in really bad situation, like with really hard rain and, and just terrible weather, that was, for me, that was very gratifying, let's put it that way, to keep the car on the island to begin with, but also to dominate the race. So that was cool. And, and there's quite a few. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are so many. I can't imagine uh, the Nurburgring. Uh, first time I ever got to drive there, I remember on one part of the track it was sunny and hot, and the other side of the track it was snowing. <laughs> it was like yeah, we had that too in the race. We had one the beginning of the track it was all dry and cool, and then no problem on slicks, and then all of a sudden you show up three quarters of a way in the lap, and it's raining on top of the mountain, and you're sliding around on slicks. So uh, yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing place. Pretty dangerous, but back then we didn't see it that way. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Fantastic stories. Thanks for sharing those with us. What are you doing right now today? What are you doing that's fun, exciting, different? What's your life like today? Well, I try to do a lot of fun things. If I get invited to do, uh, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I raced at uh, the Goodwood Revival. Awesome. In the uh, TT uh, race, and uh, I have to admit, I kind of uh, did a few steps back and said to myself, I don't know about this because, you know, they closed the track, Goodwood, in 1964 because it was deemed too dangerous. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> that many years ago, they figured out the place was dangerous, and uh, right now they're racing historic events there, and the track hasn't uh, changed a bit. So, yeah, you know, go figure. But uh, we did that race, and it was awesome because all the crews and the drivers and the spectators, everybody dresses in the time of the, the period, and and uh, it's it's a very cool event that way. And I drove a Cobra, a 1964 Cobra. Oh, my gosh. Wow. With, uh, and the, the owner, John Goodman, uh, shipped it over, and, and we shared the car there. But uh, that was a lot of fun. So I try to, you know, incorporate some of that stuff in what I do, because what I do on a regular basis, uh, I work with IndyCar, which uh, I still love to go to the IndyCar races and be a part of it that way. And, and uh, I drive the safety car at uh, some of the races. I coached Brian Clausen, for example, this year. I've, I've worked with Ryan Briscoe and Charlie Kimball and uh, Mike Conway. Uh, I worked with him at Indy. And so I do that also and just try to stay involved because I, I still love being around the IndyCar scene and sure. I like to stay on top of what's going on. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, I love it when you guys that have, have raced professional racing and, and jump into some of these historic cars. John Goodman lives up here in the Northwest where I live. I know John 
known him for a long time. I've spent some time in his garage playing with his cars. And uh, I just had Lynn St. James on the show last month. And she started doing some vintage racing as well and is really enjoying it. So it's great when we get to see you guys out there with the amateur vintage racers, uh, teaching them a little bit about how to go around the track faster. I think that's great. Here's a very introspective question for you, Ari. It's kind of a funny question, but I really like the way people answer this. It tell us, tells us a little bit about how you perceive yourself. If Ari Leyendijk was a car, or better yet, a race car, what kind of race car would he be? Hmm. I guess I would be a race car with good handling and not a lot of horsepower, not too noisy, and smooth. I don't like to be the one always heard. Uh, I'd rather listen and talk, mm-hmm. which is actually not that hard to do because most people like to talk. So you just <laughs> sit back and listen. So, yeah, maybe that's that explains uh, kind of a little bit uh, my character. Another thing I forgot to mention is obviously not anymore, but when Ari Jr. started the race, I was quite involved with that because, uh, you know, that's what he wanted is to go to Indy. Indy Lights and Indy Cars, and he ran Indy Lights for several years and had quite a bit of success, but to put together an Indy Car deal never really worked out, and uh, financially it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It doesn't always mean if you have a, a name in racing that you're just going to pick up the sponsors, because you know, the, the guys that uh, run those sponsorships programs, they really have to you know, make sure that... Uh, their boss agrees with what they do with a marketing budget, and it's not easy to find money for racing, that's for sure. Uh, yes. But um, but I'm really proud of Junior, the fact that he was able to find a sponsor, uh, to sponsor him in the, in the talk series. Uh, Gunk Cleaning Products, that's his main sponsor. Oh, great. And uh, it's now the third year that we'll be sponsoring him. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, he's... Uh, he amazes me that he always picks up the pieces and keeps going. So um, he's, got a, he's got a good trait that way. Well, he learned from his, his dad's mantra, don't give up. Just keep mm-hmm, going. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> well, great. Well, I love the way you answered that question. Well, Ari, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Metrovac has been manufacturing and providing quality automotive vacuums and blowers since 1939. I've used their portable vacuum and blowers for over 15 years in my garage, on my cars, motorcycles, around my home, and you should too. Their Air Force Master Blaster Revolution is my go-to tool every time I wash and detail my vehicles. Powered by two twin-fan 4.0 peak horsepower motors, the Master Blaster delivers up to 58,000 feet per minute of clean, warm, dry, filtered air. Dry your car without a towel and avoid those nagging micro-scratches. Perfect for the wheels, engines, motorcycles, and all those frustrating water traps in trim, door jams, and seals. Check out all of Metrovac's quality products, deliberately made better in the USA. Metrovac is the right choice. Learn more today at Metrovac.com. Use discount code CARSYA20 and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's right, 20% off. Details at CARSYA.com slash sponsors. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power 
and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Okay, Ari, we're back and we're entering the last lap. You're a racer, you know what that means. The white flag is out. It's time to put our foot on the gas pedal. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? All right. What's the best racing advice you've ever received, and who was it from? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whatever my dad told me, that was so long ago, I forget. (laughs) Well. I once said to my dad, the car is understeering. Oh, he says, well, why don't you just throw it in the corner a little harder, and then the back will come around. <laughs> there that was you the go. kind of advice that I got from my dad. Well, that's, that's great advice. We'll take that one. <laughs> Could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped and contributed to your success over the years? Yeah, I kind of, um, I do mental laps, or I do a mental race, mm. but more laps. It more had to do with qualifying. So if I would go out to qualify, mm-hmm. I would go sit in a quiet corner somewhere and I would close my eyes and I would start the lap. Mm. And I would do the whole lap the way that I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I go out and then I do it. Yeah. And I prepare myself mentally of what's coming and what I should do and what I should do in case of changes of wind direction, for instance, at Indianapolis. So, I did a lot of that when I raced. I think it's a great idea. It'd probably be a great idea for many people to use in many aspects of their life before they go into a meeting, before they go do anything, is just sit in a quiet place and walk through the process in their mind. Great advice. Is there a resource or one resource in general that you think our listeners would really enjoy? No, I'm on Facebook a little bit and Twitter, but... uh... No, I'm not, I'm not on a lot of internet sites, no. no. I mean, I look at stuff. I look at the news. I look at, I look at the, for instance, at the moment, I'm really into the Porsche brand. I like to uh, see what's going on about the uh, Porsche and the values of the older models. And mm. I've kind of studied the brand Porsche. I've been really into that lately. Oh, interesting. Okay. How about a book? Is there one book in particular you think the Car Show listeners would really enjoy reading that you've enjoyed? Well, I was just, uh, I ran into some Italian guy, and the only thing he was yelling the whole time was Rossi, Rossi, Rossi. And I go, yeah, I'm a big fan of Rossi, too. I'm not a reader at all. I read, but I don't read books. I've read, I believe, four books in my life. One of them was Valentino Rossi's book. Uh-huh. Uh, the other one was Alex Sonardi, because I have a great deal of respect for, you know, and admiration for both those guys. I read Lance Armstrong's book years ago. Hmm. Yeah, so no, I'm not a big reader. <laughs> okay, well, there's a couple that we can refer, and I'll remind our listeners you can find all these resources at carsyad.com slash Ari Leyendijk. And I understand you're going to be 
at the uh, upcoming uh, Concours in the Hills in Fountain Hills, Arizona, coming up next February, I believe, the 13th, 2016. You're one of the special guests there? I will be, and that, uh, that will be the third year of the event in Fountain Hills. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a little town that I also live in, Fountain Hills, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we have a lake there. It has a, um, a huge fountain. It's one of the tallest fountains in the country. But anyway, it's a nice little town, and group has organized uh, the historic car event around the, the fountain there, and they had a lot of beautiful cars there last year, and uh, it will be the third year. And my IndyCar will be there as well on display, as will many Ferraris, Jaguars, Maseratis, just you name it. Great. We have quite a few. In the Phoenix area, we have so many uh, uh, car collectors and people that are that love cars, so it'll be quite a good display. I think so. Well, it'll be great to see you there. I look forward to attending that event as well. All right, Ari, we're up to what I call the checkered flag here, and this last question can be a real doozy. All right. (laughs) If you could only have one collector car, and I'll include collector race car if you'd like, in your garage, but don't worry about the cost because today I'm going to buy you whatever you'd like. I'm writing the check. What would that one vehicle be and why? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, the 917 Porsche Ooh. would be a car that I would love to sit there and look at. Just a beautiful car, beautiful design, and at the time, way ahead of its time. And I'm talking about the Can-Am car, which Mark Donahue raced and George Fulmer. I think it's the 917, and then it has another number to it. But, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that car, the... Sunoco car. Yes. That, that car is just amazing. That would be a very scary car to drive at the time. <laughs> you know, I think it would be. I had the pleasure of getting to walk around and touch that vehicle. I was at Bruce Canapa's place just last month for the Rensport reunion, and they had oh, several 917s there. And at that event, they had three of those old Gulf 917s. But the car you're talking about that Mark drove was sitting right there, and what a piece of history that it is. So I think that's a great choice. I'll do my best to see if I can talk Bruce out of that car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know Bruce too, and uh, no talking him out of that car. <laughs> uh, you got to write a big check if you want a car for Bruce, that's for sure. But you know what? He does have the finest restorations of anybody, I think. He does fantastic work. He's a past guest here on Cars, yeah. Well, Ari, you have taken me on a great ride around the track today. I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. It means so much to have you as a guest here on Cars. Yeah, I've known about you and admired your racing for so many years. I'm sitting here going, wow, I'm getting to talk to Ari Leindyke. That is pretty cool. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off down the track in that 917 Porsche? Parents. Please make sure a professional teaches your children how to drive on the road. Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) I've been a big, big advocate of trying to improve the non-existing schooling for children to drive a car. It It is pathetic what goes on in the United States as far as teaching our kids how to drive. And it's such a scary thought to know that they hit the road at 16 years old without much practice and... uh, I'm not much of a politician, pusher kind of guy, but if I would stand up for one thing, it would be to enforce uh, 
driver ed in high schools, in colleges, doesn't matter where, before they really get a license and, and have enough practice because uh, I still don't understand the insurance companies do not enforce that if they look at the numbers of accidents involving young children. Yes. Uh, you know, it's really great advice, and you'll be proud of me, Ari. I made sure that both my cat, my children had over 3,500 miles under their belt driving next to me or my wife before they got their driver's license. Uh, I thought it was so important. Took them to the track, put them through a driving school, defensive driving school. Uh, it is important, yeah. and it's amazing to me that our children are being put into cars with so little time practicing, just basic practice next to somebody who can teach them. So, great advice. Yeah, and I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand the insurance company letting it happen. I don't either, but it's something for us all to work on, that's for sure. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you these days? Do you have a website or a Facebook page, or are you active out there in social media? I'm active on Twitter. They can follow me on Twitter and put out uh, fun stuff mainly, not too serious. Mm -hmm. No politics. None of that, just uh, usually car stuff and racing stuff. <laughs> and uh, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm at Ari Leyendijk. It's pretty easy to find me on Twitter. <laughs> I think so. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything we've talked about today here at CarsYad.com. Just put Ari in the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. And be sure if you get a chance to be in Arizona in February to attend the Concours in the Hills where you can see Ari, see his Indy car. Enjoy all the cars at the show. It's going to be a fantastic event. We look forward to seeing you there, Ari. And I want to thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and, and for calling in and sharing your amazing racing career with me and the Cars Yeah listeners. It's been fantastic. Until we talk again, I'll see you at the Concours in the Hills. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.